Take your Bibles with me, if you will, and open them to our study of the book of Revelation. It's been a few weeks now since we have been in this text, and this morning we are returning to our study in chapter 18. Some have asked me from time to time as we have been studying through Revelation since we are the church, the church at large, the church universal, we live in the church age and we believe that the church won't be around during the tribulation. And what's the importance for us when it comes to a study of this, right? If the Word of God says all Scripture is profitable, then what's the profit of Revelation for us if we're not going to be around? As if in that question there is a sense in which we say only that which which we experience is profitable. The fact of the matter is that Revelation teaches us much about what is to come, but in teaching us about what is to come, it's teaching us about God. It's teaching us about the one whom we are to worship and helping us understand in greater detail and with a greater sense of weightiness the holiness of God, the severity of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God to do exactly what God says He will do. And it impels us in understanding who God is to therefore then go and be even more of a light of the gospel to a dying and lost world who will face these things, each and every person if they are living at that time, will face not only these things, but also the eternal fires of hell if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so all of this that we are learning is teaching us about God and His sovereignty and God and His greatness and the glory with which and through which we have been saved and now sit here as the church. There is coming a day when all of this will happen. And of course, as we know, this is a book concerning the future of the world. Our news media, our world today tries to predict what the future will be like. We have scientists looking out into space trying to decide what is there and how the world came about. And we know. We know exactly what happened and we know exactly what will happen in the future. Why? Because the one who has created it all and the one who will uncreate it all to recreate a new heaven and a new earth tells us exactly what will happen. This is the future of the world here in Revelation. It is the future for Israel as a people. It is the future judgment of God upon the earth. We have come to the final moments of the tribulation period in our study. Just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth and sets up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years prior to then the coming of his eternal kingdom in glory where we will dwell forever and ever. In our study, the final trumpet has already sounded. The, the final bowl of God's wrath has been poured out and now we are looking at the final judgment of the Antichrist and the city that is central to his reign on the earth. This is the judgment of the city known as Babylon. This is when God, as we have entitled this in a, in a subtitle, this is when God intervenes in history. 
God has intervened in history in the past. God has brought the flood upon the earth. God has come to earth in the form of man. He, Christ Jesus himself, took on the form of man. God has intervened in history throughout the ages and through events. And this will be an event unlike none ever seen before. And I want to read for us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18, just down through verse 8. John says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence, mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is It's an amazing text, really. A frightening text to even begin to contemplate in our own time. I'm not even sure we, in our own minds, can really draw an accurate, clear, full-sensed, weighty picture of all that will take place. If you were taking notes last time when we were studying this, then you know that we have broken this down into four parts just so that we can hang our thoughts of it on, on certain things. And we've, we've covered the first of our four different parts. We, we first looked at the verdict upon Babylon in verses 1 to 3. And John introduces this to us with just a simple phrase, after these things, he says. After the Antichrist and the ten kings who were in cohorts with him, uh, destroy the system of false religion, as we saw in chapter 17. Under the same name, the woman is also uh, this false religious system, and she is the the mother of harlots, as it says in chapter 17, verse 5, and of the abominations of the earth. She is the mystery Babylon the Great. She is the religious side of this whole idea under the term Babylon and the Antichrist and the ten kings with her will grow to hate her during the first half of the tribulation so that they even destroy her, get rid of all false religion, at least false religion other than the worship of the Antichrist alone. And after that passes, 
and the three and a half years of his reign pass, his judgment will come. And it is pronounced with these words in verse 2 of chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen is Babylon the great. So from the perspective of heaven, remember John has been taken to heaven to be shown these things. From the perspective of heaven, Babylon's day of doom is complete. Even though in time, in the carrying out of history in time, it is yet to come. It is yet future in heaven. From the perspective of heaven, it is already finished. It is a done deal. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And so the rest of chapter 18 simply describes for us what has already been set in stone in the glories of heaven. This will come to pass, not because certain things must come together for it to come to pass. That surely will take place. But all of that will take place and it will come to pass because God has declared it so. This is something we learn about God. That when God speaks, His word always comes to pass. It never returns void, it is never disqualified, it is never brushed aside, it always comes to pass. Whatever God says does come to pass. Lock that in your mind, you've seen it throughout the entire book of Revelation, God does what God says. Think about that as a truth as we go through this, and think about it not only in your own life, but think about it in the lives of those whom you come in contact with who do not know God what he says of them and what he says about them and what he says about sin and about the heart will in fact come to pass. Why? Because God declares it so. Chapter 18 simply shows that reality taking place. Her destruction, that is Babylon, is sure and it will be completed in time. Make no mistake about it. Don't fret about what's happening on the earth. Don't don't get all up in arms and anxious about the demise of our world. The fact of the matter is God has declared it. It will come to pass. It should not surprise us to see the world coming apart at the seams. And Babylon itself, this central city of the Antichrist, will be in fact a prison of demons. It says in verse 2, And all the nations will be in concert with her. All the nations will be drunk of the wine of the passion of her immoralities. Her religious and her sensual and her physical realities that all take place in in direct opposition to the truth of God. So that was the first thing. Just this declaration against her. And now let's go to the second part of our outline. That is the judgment from heaven or the summons, if you will, from heaven. Again, from the view of the very desolation of the satanic prison, as John has seen it in Babylon, going to be that during the days of her destruction, we are now taken back by John in time, really, to the final uh, command, the final judgment, the final summons, if you will, before judgment comes upon Babylon. Notice verse 4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven 
saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. John says, I heard another voice. It isn't the voice of the angel that we heard already in verse 2. This is another voice. And since this is a call addressed to my people, it says, come out of her, my people, I believe this is the voice of Christ himself. This is Christ summoning his own people. I believe this is Christ. This is, this is God incarnate calling His own to disengage themselves with this worldly system. Here in the tribulation, the, the system of the Antichrist. And we cannot forget that all throughout the tribulation, God is saving people. The church is gone, but God is still in the business of saving people. He is saving, even chapter 7 told us way back then, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people. And God is primarily saving His people, the Jews. Jews are finally coming to Christ in droves. In fact, we learn that there is a specific group, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, preaching the gospel during the tribulation. 144,000 Jewish men, Jewish preachers, preaching about Jesus Christ. There is, of course, as we saw earlier, the angel that's flying across in mid-heaven as God sovereignly dispatches one of His angelic beings to go and to preach the gospel so that all would hear the gospel. And so, by the preaching of the gospel, there will be a great saving of souls. You talk about revival in the land. God will save people, even in the tribulation world. It's an amazing reality about God. God is all-powerful. God's Word always comes to pass. And yet God at the same time, in, in the reality of dispatching and even declaring judgment, God desires to save. What an amazing truth about our God. It isn't that God is all love. It isn't that God is all judgment. God's love and judgment so coexist that one cannot operate without the other so that His judgment is loving and His love is a proper judgment upon those whom He has placed His love. He cannot do one without the other. For God to not judge is to be a God who does not love. And we know that God is saving people during this time. And we also know that many of those who are saved will be martyred for their faith. Many of them, as they refuse to take the mark of the beast, will pay with their life. It will cost them their very physical life. But some of them will escape that persecution. Some of them will even survive that persecution during this time. And the temptation for them may very well be to get caught up in the system of Antichrist. It's an interesting terminology here. 
in verse 4, come out of her, my people. This is God's calling upon those whom he's drawing to himself and even those who may even know Christ already to come out of this worldly system. And I don't believe it's much different than for any of us today as Christians. God isn't different in the tribulation than he's ever been with the temptation that we have around us in the world before us at every turn to be like the world, to embrace the world. God commands us to not love the world nor the things in the world. And here in verse 4 we say the same thing. See the same thing. So it's like today. For these people, family and friends will subtly apply pressure to them so that in the time of the tribulation they are more and more tempted to be part of the world, disguising themselves, if you will, in their trust in God. And then there will be this constant pressure to live, to simply gain sustenance for life because under the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell without having any of that. And they'll have a need to eat and a need to buy and sell goods, at least a need to interact with those kinds of things, even though no true Christian would ever take the mark of the beast. And some of them will get caught up even living within the city, Babylon itself the very center of the Antichrist kingdom. And Christ is calling and warning all at the same time. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Now, you, you might be saying in your mind, that seems rather strange. Seems rather strange. How could these people be called my people and yet be so engaged in sinful living? We're not trying to redefine the terms of Scripture here and say that someone can continue to live carnally in Christ, or, and claim Christ and actually truly be a believer. The Bible clearly describes Christians as those who obey. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Christians, true Christians, and if you've been with us on our Sunday night series, truly understand those things. We don't deny sin, but we confess sin continuously, and there is this desire to obediently live for Christ. If you do that during the tribulation, it's surely you may lose your life. So how can these people be called my people? I think the answer to that question is simply to understand another thing about God and this reality of salvation, and it is to look at salvation from the sovereign side of salvation. There is the practical side of salvation in this sense that we understand when someone's saved, right? When they believe in Jesus Christ, they're saved. But there's a sovereign side to salvation. And we don't always look at that. In other words, God calls His own now as they will be once he saves them. Let me say that again. God sovereignly calls his own right now as they will be once he saves them. So in the mind of God, just as if Babylon is already destroyed because of the plan of God and the declaration of God, so too when God places his love upon someone They will be saved. God sees them now in that perspective. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I want to turn back just for a moment, just to help us understand this, back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. And I want us to hear the words from God himself. Not that revelation isn't God's word, but but sometimes we think, well, I need a little more proof, as if there could be more proof. I want to show you the words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus Christ is speaking with Pharisees, those who profess to know Jesus Christ, or to know God, profess to have a relationship with God, but but had no life that showed that, and Christ is showing them that they are blind. In fact, he says in chapter 9, verse 40, those of the Pharisees who heard him, who heard these things, said to him, we are not blind also, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, what he's saying to if you recognized your sin then you would realize you had sin to be forgiven and your sin by confession would be forgiven. But since you say, we see, in other words, I don't need to confess sin, then your sin remains. He says, yes, you're, you're, you're blind. You just think you see. You're, you're a walking around blind man who is confused, believing that in your blindness you see. And then he goes into John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. In other words, there's one way in. There's one way into the sheepfold, and that's the door, right? He who enters any other way, he who comes in any other way, is not true. He's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door, verse 2, notice, is a shepherd of the sheep. Why does he use the word shepherd there? Because he's speaking to the Pharisees who claim to be shepherds of the spiritual people. Same way, you've got to come through the door. You've got to enter by the door. To him, the doorkeeper opens, to the one who enters by the door. And the sheep hear his voice, that is the doorkeeper, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes forth to the, before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus is laying an argument here. You Pharisees claim to know God, but you don't know God. Why? Because you don't listen to my voice. Stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the stranger. And this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what things... He was saying to them. And so Jesus got a little more clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus says, okay, you, you don't get it yet. You don't get the analogy. I'm the door. You've got to come through me. You guys don't know the sheep. You don't even treat the sheep right. Why? Because you've never come through the door. You're not a shepherd of the sheep because you don't know the true shepherd, the doorkeeper. I'm the door. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep don't hear them. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, notice, he shall be saved and he shall go in and out and find pasture. Go in and out where? Go in and out of the sheepfold, right? He's a, he's a sheep. He's a sheep. The thieves only come steal. They come to destroy. I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now he's getting pointed with the Pharisees. You guys are only hirings. You're not shepherds. You run when the sheep are in trouble. You flee when the wolf comes and he snatches them and scatters them. You flee. Why? Because you're hireling. You don't know the the shepherd. You're not concerned about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's using specific terms. Sheep know me. I'm the shepherd. They're sheep. They're not goats. They're sheep. And notice verse 16. I have other sheep. Which are not of this fold. He's talking to the Jews here. He says, I have other sheep. He's identifying them as sheep. But they're not of the Jews. They're of some other thing. I must bring them also. And notice the terminology. And they shall hear my voice. And they shall become one flock with one shepherd. He's calling others whom he knows he's going to save because of his divine election to save. He's calling them already sheep before they even hear his voice. They're of mine. They're of another fold, but they're mine. I'll bring them also and they shall hear my voice. Why? Because I chose them and they shall become one flock under one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I that I may take it up again. No one has ever taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority. I have authority. This commandment I received from the Father. You see, Jesus Christ is calling those whom He hasn't even saved yet, sheep. He understands what has been set in stone in the divine realm because He's God. And it will come to pass. There's a means through which it's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass through the means of the gospel. Through someone sharing the gospel with them. And through the spirit changing their heart. And they express faith in Jesus Christ. They hear his voice and they follow him. That's the means through which it. But in the annals of time. Or in the, in the annals I should say of God's commands. And God's divine sovereignty. They're already seen as sheep. Now go back to Revelation chapter 18. Because Revelation chapter 18 is just using this heavenly divine perspective on this. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. I believe this is a warning, but it's also an evangelistic call. Because God's people can genuinely be called God's people from the sovereign side of salvation. Before they're ever actually saved. And so Christ is saying to those who have been set apart from eternity past. Because of the elective love of God. Come to faith in your Savior. Come out of that system. And the point is this. Get out. Before judgment comes. Get out before judgment falls. Come to me. Why? Because judgment is coming. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Hurry up. 
Accept Jesus Christ. Come to Christ because judgment is coming. Get out before it comes. Why? Because once it comes, there's no hope. Hebrews 9.27, right? It has been appointed to man once to die and then comes judgment. There's no middle ground. There's no place of waiting. There's no waiting room. You die and meet God. You take your final breath and the next moment you're before God. It's been appointed unto man once to die. And then judgment. There is no hope after death. God is such a loving and gracious God that he would warn God is such a loving and gracious God that he would call even up to the last moment. Even up to the last moment. And for those who already believe, this is a call to spiritual separation. Listen, like I said earlier, no true saint would ever accept the mark of the beast. But there certainly will be that temptation to belong to any association with the Babylonian system that might help your daily survival. So success in life during the tribulation period will depend upon this association and the security that that association may bring. And to obey Christ will put life at risk. To obey Christ would be to do opposite of what the world's doing and your life will be at risk. For those of you who were part of Tim's Bible study studying John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, you may remember Pilgrim getting caught up in Vanity Fair and the principle that it's being taught that spiritual saints are called to separate from Vanity Fair. Spiritual saints are called to separate from the world. In fact, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have the righteousness, have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with the things of Satan or Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Paul is illustrating and and commanding what God has commanded throughout all the ages. The whole reality of what the term holiness means. This separateness unto the things which are ungodly. And so here is the same thing. This call to spiritual separation in the future day. And yet that same call is just as necessary then as it is right now. Christianity, folks, is a life of separateness. Not a life of aloneness. A life of separateness. It's a life of constant detachment from the things of the world. Christianity calls 
for us to evaluate every attitude, everything of life, and constantly be detaching ourselves from our stranglehold, from our grip upon those things which might draw us away from the things of holiness. Whatever that is. From, from any association of this world that might draw your heart away from Christ. Which we're called to. The life of following in the footsteps of Christ. And that life is costly. Sadly, even in our own body, even in our own hearts, if we think about it, there are some of us are so tied to the world that God has even removed things from our life and has to even remove us. At times there have been professing Christians whom God has removed from the face of this earth because His name is not going to be mocked by them professing His name and yet living so disobediently. The Christian life is a life of detachment. And during the tribulation, it will be no different. It will cost comforts. It will cost worldly goods. Being attached to Jesus Christ, being enveloped in Christ by faith will cost you friendships. It will even cost family ties. But the summons of Jesus Christ, the command of Jesus Christ is both absolute and its demands are for instant obedience. Don't delay. Why? Because failure to obey simply invites disaster into your life. Notice what he says in verse 4. Come out of her so that you may not participate in her sins. And that you may not receive of her plagues. That's a very interesting reality, even during the tribulation. Christ calling his own out and saying, listen, if you remain, you're participating and you will even receive what is coming upon them. All it takes is participation. All it takes is association. The word is soon koinat. Koina or koino neo is what it is. Soon koino eo. It means to have fellowship with or to to share in. That's the idea of the word participate. And the consequence of her sin is about to come, and it's about to become the consequence for you. Why? Because you've participated. Because of your association. Some of us wonder at times, not as if God is directly punishing us, but there's, a, there's an overflow, if you will, as His judgment upon this world, and we suffer because of our close association with worldly things. We pray, God, remove me from all of this, and what is the answer to our trouble is not God, remove me. What is the answer to our trouble is to walk by faith, and that walk by faith is going to take us down roads that have to separate us from the things that we have come to love that we should not love. God is calling us out like Lot. Get out before judgment comes. Get out. 
Don't turn around. Don't look. Don't get a second thought about it. Just get out. Be separate from her. Even if you lost your life, it's well better than losing your soul. Surely you may lose friends. Surely you may lose family. Surely you may lose the things of this world, but not any of that compares to the losing of your soul. Separate yourself from her sin, he says. Separate yourself from her altogether that you may not receive of her plagues. We need not get confused right here because we've heard the word plagues before. In fact, back in chapter 16, she was told that the plagues were going to fall upon her. That the bowls of judgment are the plagues. I heard a voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go out, pour out your seven bowls of wrath upon the earth. And the angels went and did all that. And if you read that chapter, it's a plague, right? Verse 21, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. And so you look at chapter 18 and you go, well, that must be those plagues. I don't think this here in chapter 18 is completely being referenced or is the complete reference back to chapter 16. Why? Because the bold judgments are happening all over the globe. They're happening all over the earth. And it is clear from chapter 18 that some people stand at a distance and watch the destruction of the city of Babylon. Notice in verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality live sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of fear of her torment. So somehow, even when the judgment begins to fall, or even just before that, they they even leave the city and watch the destruction. So while the bold judgments include this judgment upon Babylon, I believe that what is being seen here are some specific warnings. Because if it was the final judgments of the bulls, then there wouldn't be anywhere to go. There's nowhere to run. So God's tribulation saints are called here to get out. Get out before you're judged. Get out and separate yourself from their iniquity. So this is clear. This is a clear call uh, for those who are the Lord's to, to separate themselves from the system of the world in which is going to be destroyed. The same call to every Christian in every generation. Get out from that system. Even in our study Sunday night of 1 John, we are reminded of that. Don't love the world nor the things in the world. It's a call to spiritual separation. Don't be seduced by the world. Don't, don't follow in the iniquity of the world in the age that we live in. Don't, don't follow after the things of this particular age or any age to come. Whatever there is of idolatry, whatever there is of sensuality, whatever there is of debauchery and self-glorification and pride and, and this 
self-exaltation and this complacency to the things of God, wherever there's this reliance upon wealth as if that's what's going to save you, wherever there's an indulgence in pleasure and everything else, violence, there you see the, the, the seedbeds of Babylon. God will judge it. In fact, verse 5 says, For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. God has remembered her iniquity. The word piled up is an interesting word. It means glued together. Glued together or or welded together, if you will. Her sins have been glued together in such a way they've piled themselves up like a new tower of Babel. God is now going to take action. Her time has come. And so from the call of his people to come out of her comes this call for divine judgment. And notice, it's the same voice as before. Look at verse 6 and 7. Pay her back, even as she has paid. Give back double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree give her torment and mourning. You see, before it was Christ speaking, come out of her, my people, and now it's the same Christ speaking. Before he's speaking grace and, and commanding those who are his, come out of her, now it's judgment coming from his voice. Let's never think Christ is all love. We like to think that. We like to think of the gentle, soft Jesus Christ who's sitting on his mother's lap as heresy tries to teach as if she's helping him in some kind of way. Listen, Jesus Christ surely is the personification of the love of God. We know that. But Jesus Christ is also the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords who will come in authority and who will judge. So before it's Christ calling them out, here it's Christ calling for judgment to fall. Listen, this is the doctrine of divine retribution. Doctrine of divine retribution. Give to her as she has given. Give to her according to her deeds. Listen, make no mistake about this in our thinking. God's law of divine retribution is both perfectly righteous and perfectly exact. Let me say that again. God's law of divine retribution is both perfectly righteous and perfectly exact. That means it makes no mistakes and it always hits its target. Our U.S. military has smart bombs. This is a smart bomb like you've never seen. It will not miss anything. There is not one hair in which it will go astray. It is exact and it is perfectly righteous. And don't think that God is giving her more than she deserves here. In fact, the word double simply carries the idea of counterpart. She is getting the very counterpart to her sin. Pay her back exactly what she has mixed for herself. Pay her with the very counterpart to her deeds. We might even say it this way. The punishment fits the crime. It is perfectly righteous. Perfectly exact. In fact, this is just a a way in the Hebrew language of saying, give her full measure. Give her full measure. Give her exactly 
what she deserves. The day of grace is over. All preaching is done. All gospel proclamations are over. It's now time for destruction. What God has said will come to pass. And this will be the saddest of all days. Why? Because the whole world has heard the truth. We're looking into the future. The history, the future history of the world. All the world has heard the truth. They've heard and heard and heard and continually heard and they continually refuse to believe. We read it this morning. Russ read it in our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 28, verse 4. Pay them according to the work and according to the evil of their practices. Pay them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. It's the prayer of the psalmist. Give them exactly what they deserve. Psalm 137 says this, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. Do you see? She has desecrated the truth. She has dishonored God. She has rejected Christ. So give her what she should get. Too late for repentance. It's too late. Give her according to her deeds. Mix for her the exact thing that she has mixed for others. There has been plenty of opportunity. Plenty of times when people could have repented. But they refused. Now, the judgment of Babylon is reached to the skies and there were those who, who tried to bring heart change. There were those who, who preached the gospel, but they would have none of it. The gospel wouldn't be heard. And so this is the judicial pronouncement against sinful civilization. That's what you see here. And her, and her punishment corresponds to the very thing she did. It corresponds to her self-glorification. It corresponds to her luxurious lifestyle that she displayed. Verse 7 says, she glorified herself. She lived sensuously or luxuriously is what that word is. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning. The word torment is a frightening word. The word is, it's, it's, a, it's a word that, in the original language, used to describe the most physical pain any body can endure. Torment. Take it to the maximum degree before you completely die. Maximum torment. The Jews used to have 39 lashes because they always said to the 40, if you die. This is torment. This is, this is pain to the, to the very maximum. We've seen this word before. Uh, we saw it back when, in chapter 9 when, 
when God in the judgments allowed these demons to come out that were like scorpions that stung people in their pain. They were in torment, it says. It's the same word. Their, their pain was to the point of, of nearly killing them, and yet there, sovereignly, they could not die. They could only be tormented. Give her torment. Babylon is being given unbearable pain and mourning or, or sorrow. There's this pain that brings sorrow. Sorrow is the anguish and the grief that's brought on by that pain. I remember years ago when I was living in California, I was doing something in our garage and I was nailing something above my head and, and I took a full swing and, and hit that nail right there with all this might. And immediately the pain shot all the way down my arm. I, I, there was no pain here. The pain was down here. I could, I mean, it was unbearable. I won't tell you what I did next because my wife would get grossed out about drilling my fingernails so the blood would come out. But there, I, I told you. But that surely relieved the pain. There's none of that here. Unbearable pain, unbearable sorrow. All I could think of when I was reading this and studying this is this is just a a small picture. And this isn't even the reality itself, but this is a small picture of hell itself. Just a a look through the crack, if you will. Unbearable, unending pain. This is God's response, God's answer to the pride, God's answer to the pleasure-seeking world, God's answer to to the city of the Antichrist. Anti-God city. Why? Because of their self-glory. Because of self-gratification. Because of self-sufficiency. Notice she says, I'm the queen. I'm not a widow. I will never see mourning for all of that. Give them what they deserve. To the same degree that she glorified herself, to the same degree that there was this self-gratification after the things of the world to herself, to the same degree that she lived in self-sufficiency, give her pain. It's frightening, isn't it? Frightening. Yeah, we won't be there because we're the church, but you know what? That doesn't matter because it's the same God. And this tells us something about God. This tells us something about His hatred for sin and the reason why Christ had to come and pay the penalty for our sin. It's frightening that Christ would have to pronounce such a great torment here upon people. But that is exactly what is to come for all those who refuse to believe. Verse 8 says, For this reason in one day her plagues will come. For this reason in one day Death, mourning, famine, burning, one day. In fact, verse 10 says, for in one hour your judgment has come. I was thinking about this as I was sitting there thinking about preaching, thinking about in this term in one day and thinking about all the things that happen in a day's time in 24-hour time period in America, let alone the world, and in one day... Yes, in one day, but in one hour. In 60 minutes time, all of this will come. 
for self-glorification, for self-gratification, for self-sufficiency in one day, destruction comes. By the way, Daniel chapter 5, you say, really, does it happen that fast? Does things come that quick with God? Listen, Daniel chapter 5, Daniel sees the vision of Babylon. Babylon in ancient history that we see, which was not only a prophecy about that Babylon, but also a look ahead towards this Babylon in Daniel's prophecy. Remember what happened in Daniel chapter 5? There was a big party going on with the king of Babylon, and a, a finger came and wrote on the wall. The finger read, Mene, mene, take all you farson. You've been weighed in the scales in the balances of heaven, and you have come up wanting. In other words, you've come up short. God has measured you, and you've come up short. And what happened in the text? In that very hour, in the very hour that the handwriting was on the wall, the Medes and the Persians were coming into the city to destroy it. That very moment. That's how it's going to be in the end. One day, your plagues are going to come. Why? The last phrase of verse 8. Because the Lord God who judges is strong. See, you said you'll never see mourning. But to no avail, the Lord God who judges is strong. You want to learn something about God? Lock that term in your mind. The Lord God is strong, mighty. There is no other valid reason for the destruction of this city. Our God is an exacting God. He is a sovereign God who knows every heart and knows every detail and knows every deed. Arrogantly, sometimes even as Christians, we sin and we think, oh, hey, listen, I'm okay. God never sees that. We hide it from people, we hide it from men around us and women around us and spiritual people in our midst and we think, okay, I got away with it then. Guess what? God sees it. God's exacting. You won't get away with it. God will hold you accountable. It's a frightening thing. Because you know your heart, don't you? You see who you are on the inside that nobody sees. God sees it. And He will repay men according to their deeds. So if you're not enveloped in Christ, if you're not shrouded in His righteousness by faith and repentance, then the day of wrath awaits you, John 3.36 says. God's wrath remains on you. From the annals, or from the, the sovereign seat of God's kingdom in in. In the glories of heaven, he sees it as a done deal. His wrath remains. It hasn't been removed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So all your deeds will be recompensed. Why? Because the Lord God who judges is strong. And today, Christ is summoning. Today, Christ is calling. And he's saying to you who are Christians, come out of this world. Don't be like the world. Repent of your sin. Turn from your idols. Turn to the living and true God. For those of you who aren't saved, he's saying the same thing. Repent of your sin. Turn from the world. Come out of her. Embrace Jesus Christ. 
To the unbeliever, repent and exercise faith in Christ. To the believer, live a life of separateness from the things of the world. Live lives of detachment from the world. From the system of Antichrist. From the forces of the earth. Those things will have no match against God. Their judgment is certain. And all of those who reject Christ will face the same eternal judgment. So, the verdict has been pronounced. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. The calling out has been given. The beauty is that judgment can be avoided. But it only comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 18, after those things, the weeping begins. The weeping begins. Not crying because they don't know Christ. Crying because the things of the world that they love so much are being taken away. We'll get to see all of that next time. Let's pray together. Father, these are amazing truths. The reality of your sovereignty over all things, once again reminded here in this text. The exactness of your word, the definitiveness of all that you have said and declared in the throne room of heaven. The reality that those who even aren't saved yet, those who will be saved in the future to come, are still your children even in the annals of time before or in heaven before you ever saved them. You know they're yours. Lord, I pray that these words are heavy upon our hearts, not for the sake of crushing us, but for the sake of motivating us. Motivating us to look at our own lives in light of who you are. Seeing, yes, your love, but seeing your justice. For you're a holy God, an exacting God, a righteous God. A God who misses nothing, who hears everything, who sees it all, and who will recompense men according to their deeds. And if they do not know Jesus Christ by faith, that day is coming where they will face you. Today may be the final breath. Without Jesus Christ, there's only judgment. So we pray, Lord, that those here who do not know you would this day come to know Christ, repent of their sin, embrace Christ by faith, and be removed from judgment to come because of your judgment upon your dear Son. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Those of us who know you, Lord, teach us through whatever means necessary to be separate from the things of the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Help us to draw those lines with definitiveness in our own heart to serve and honor you. And then detach ourselves from the things of the world and the hold that we have on these things. Help us to long for the glories of heaven more than anything of this earth that your name would be uplifted not only in our words, but in our deeds. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the 
stream of Calvary's blood that runs all through the text of our study. Thank you for the blood shed there that we might have life in His name. In His name we pray. Amen.